Chapter Eleven of the Red Planet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Marianne. The Red Planet by William J. Locke. Chapter Eleven. Gedge bitterly upbraided his daughter, both for her desertion of his business and her criminal folly in abandoning it so as to help mend the shattered bodies of fools and knaves who, by joining the forces of militarism, had betrayed the sacred cause of the industrial solidarity of labor. His first ground for complaint was scarcely tenable. With his dwindling business the post of clerk had dwindled to a sinecure. To sit all day at the receipt of imaginary custom is not a part fitted for a sane and healthy young human being. Still, from Gedge's point of view, her defection was a grievance, but that she could throw in her lot openly with the powers of darkness was nothing less than an outrage. I suppose, in a kind of crabbed way, the crabbed fellow was fond of Phyllis. She was pretty. She had dainty tricks of dress. She flitted, an agreeable vision, about his house. He liked to hear her play the piano, not because he had any ear for music, but because it tickled his vanity to reflect that he, the agricultural laborer's son and apprentice to a village carpenter, was the possessor of a Broadway grand and of a daughter who, entirely through his efforts, had learned to play on it. Like most of his political type, he wallowed in his own peculiar snobbery. But of anything like companionship between father and daughter, there existed very little. While railing, wherever he found ears into which to rail, against the vicious luxury and sordid shallowness of the upper middle class, his instinctive desire to shine above his poor associates had sent Phyllis to an upper middle class school. Now Gedge had a certain amount of bookish and political intelligence. Phyllis, inheriting the intellectual equipment of her sentimental fool of a mother, had none. Oh, she had a vast fund of ordinary common sense. Of that I can assure you. A bit of hard brain fiber from her father had counteracted any over-sentimental folly in the maternal heritage, and she had come back from school a very ladylike little person. If pressed, she could reel off all kinds of artificial scraps of knowledge, like a dear little parrot. But she had never heard of Karl Marx, and didn't want to hear. She had a vague notion that international socialism was a movement in favor of throwing bombs at monarchs and of seizing the wealth of the rich in order to divide it among the poor, and she regarded it as abominable. When her father gave her Fabian Society tracts to read, he might just as well, for all her understanding of the argument, set her down to a treatise on the infinitesimal calculus. Her brain stood blank before such abstract disquisitions. She loved easily comprehended poetry, and novels that made her laugh or cry, and set her mind dancing round the glowing possibilities of life. All disastrous stuff abhorred by the international socialist, to whom the essential problems of existence are of no interest whatever. So, after a few futile attempts to darken her mind, Gedge put her down as a mere fool woman, and ceased to bother his head about her intellectual development. That came to him quite naturally. There is no Turk nor contemptuous of his womankind's political ideas than the Gedges of our enlightened England. But on other counts she was a distinct asset. He regarded her with immense pride, as a more ornamental adjunct to his house than any other county builder and contractor could display. And, recognizing that she was possessed of some low feminine cunning in the way of adding up figures and writing letters, made use of her in his office as general clerical factotum. When the war broke out, he discovered, to his horror, 
that Phyllis actually had political ideas, unshakable, obstinate ideas opposed to his own, and that he had been nourishing in his bosom a viperous patriot. Phyllis, for her part, realized with equal horror the practical significance of her father's windy theories. When Randall, who had stolen her heart, took to visiting the house in order, as far as she could make out, to talk treason with her father, the strain of the situation grew more than she could bear. She fled to Betty for advice. Betty promptly stepped in and whisked her off to the hospital. It was on the morning on which Randall interviewed me in the garden, the morning after he had broken with Gedge that Phyllis, having a little off time, went home. She found her father in the office making out a few bills. He thrust forward his long chin and aggressive beard and scowled at her. Oh, it's you, is it? Come at last where your duty calls you, eh? I always come when I can, father, she replied. She bent down and kissed his cheek. He caught her roughly round the waist and, leaning back in his chair, looked up at her sourly. How long are you going on defying me like this? She tried to disengage herself, but his arm was too strong. Oh, father, she said rather wearily, don't let us go over this old argument again. But suppose I find some new argument. Suppose I send you packing altogether, refuse to contribute further to your support. What then? She started at the threat, but replied valiantly, I should have to earn my own living. How are you going to do it? There are heaps of ways. He laughed. There ain't, as you'd soon find out. They don't even pay for you being scullery maid to a lot of common soldiers. She protested against that view of her avocation. In the perfectly appointed Wellingsford Hospital she had no scullery work. She was a probationer, in training as a nurse. He still gripped her. The particular kind of tomfoolery you are up to doesn't matter. We didn't quarrel. I've another proposition to put before you, much more to your fancy, I think. You like this Mr. Randall Holmes, don't you? She shivered a little and flushed deep red. Her father had never touched on the matter before. She said, straining away, I don't want to talk about Mr. Holmes. But I do. Come, my dear. In this life there must always be a certain amount of give and take. I'm not the man to drive a one-sided bargain. I'll make you a fair offer, as between father and daughter. I'll wipe out all that's past. In leaving me like this, when misfortune has come upon me, You've been guilty of unfilial conduct. No one can deny it. But I'll overlook everything, forgive you fully, and take you to my heart again, and leave you free to do whatever you like without interfering with your opinions, if you'll promise me one thing. I know what you're going to say, she twisted round on him swiftly. I'll promise at once. I'll never marry Mr. Holmes. I've already told him I won't marry him. Surprise relaxed his grip. She took swift advantage and sheered away to the other side of the table. He rose and brought down his hand with a thump. You refused him? Why, you silly little baggage! My condition is that you should marry him. You're sweet on him, aren't you? I detest him, cried Phyllis. Why should I marry him? Her eyes, young and pure, divined some sordid horror behind eyes crafty and ignoble. Once before she had had such a fleeting uncomprehended vision into the murky depths of the man's soul. This was some time ago. In the routine of her secretarial duties she had, one morning, opened and read a letter, not marked private or personal, whose tenor she could scarcely understand. When she handed it to her father, he smiled, vouchsafed a specious explanation, 
and looked at her in just the same crafty and ignoble fashion, and she shrank away frightened. The matter kept her awake for a couple of nights. Then, for sheer easing of her heart, she went to her adored Betty Fairfax, her lady patroness and mother confessor, who, being wise and strong, and possessing the power of making her kind eyes unfathomable, laughed, bade her believe her father's explanation, and sent her away comforted. The incident passed out of her mind, but now memory smote her, as she shrank from her father's gaze and the insincere smile on his thin lips. "'For one thing,' he replied after a pause, pulling his scraggly beard, "'your poor dear mother was a lady, and if she had lived she would have wanted you to marry a gentleman. It's for her sake I have given you an education that fits you to consort with gentlefolk, just for her sake. Don't make any mistake about it, for I've always hated the breed. If I violated my principles in order to meet her wishes, I think you ought to meet them, too. You wouldn't like to marry a small tradesman or a working man, would you?' "'I'm not going to marry anybody,' cried Phyllis. She was only a pink and white, very ordinary little girl. I have no idealizations or illusions concerning Phyllis, but she had a little fine steel of character running through her. It flashed on Gedge. "'I don't want to marry anybody,' she declared. "'But I'd sooner marry a bricklayer who was fighting for his country "'than a fine gentleman like Mr. Holmes, who wasn't. "'I'd sooner die,' she cried passionately. "'Then go and die, and be damned to you,' snarled Gedge, "'planting himself noisily in his chair. "'I've no use for khaki-struck, driveling idiots. "'I've no use for patriots. "'Bah! Damn patriots! "'The upper classes are out for all they can get.' and they befoul the poor imbecile working man with all their highfalutin phrases to get it for them at the cost of his blood. I've no use for them, I tell you, and I've no use either for undutiful daughters. I've no use for young women who blow hot and cold. Haven't I seen you with the fellow? Do you think I'm a blind dawdler? Do you think I haven't kept an eye on you? Haven't I seen you blowing as hot as you please?' And now, because he refuses to be a blinkin' idiot and have his guts blown out in this war of fools and knaves and capitalists, you blast him like a three-farthing iceberg. Everything in her that was tender, maidenly, English, shrank lacerated. But the steel held her. She put both her hands on the table and bent over towards him. But, Father, except that he's a gentleman, you haven't told me why you want me to marry Mr. Holmes. He fidgeted with his fingers. "'Haven't you a spark of affection for me left?' She said dutifully, "'Yes, father.' "'I want you to marry him. I've set my heart on it. It has been the one bright hope in my life for months. Can't you marry him because you love me?' "'One generally marries because one loves the man one's going to marry,' said Phyllis. "'But you do love him,' cried Gedge. "'Either you're just a wanton little hussy, or you must care for the fellow.' I don't. I hate him. And I don't want to have anything more to do with him. The tears came. He's a pro-German, and I won't have anything to do with pro-Germans. She fled precipitously from the office, into the street, and made a blind course to the hospital, feeling in dumb misery that she had committed the unforgivable sin of casting off her father, and, at the same time, that she had made stalwart proclamation of her faith. If ever a good— loyal little heart was torn to piteous shreds. That little heart was Phyllis's. In the bare x-ray room of the hospital, which happened to be vacant, Betty sat on the one straight-backed wooden chair, while a weeping damsel on the uncarpeted floor 
sobbed in her lap and confessed her sins and sought absolution. Of course Gedge was a fool, if I, or any wise, diplomatic, tactful person like myself, had found it necessary to tackle a young woman on the subject of matrimonial alliance, we should have gone about the business in quite a different way. But what could you expect from an anarchical Turk like Gedge? Phyllis, not knowing whether she were outcast and disinherited or not, found, of course, a champion in Betty, who, in her spacious manner, guaranteed her freedom from pecuniary worries for the rest of her life. But Phyllis was none the less profoundly unhappy, and it took a whole convoy of wounded to restore her to cheerfulness. You can't attend to a poor, brave devil grinning with pain, while a surgeon pokes a six-inch probe down a sinus in search of bits of bones or shrapnel, and be acutely conscious of your own two-penny, half-penny little miseries. Many a heartache, in this wise, has been cured in the houses of pain. Now, nothing much would have happened, I suppose, if Phyllis, driven from the hospital by superior decree that she should take fresh air and exercise, had not been walking some days afterwards across the common by the canal. Bordering the latter, Wellingsford had an avenue of secular chestnuts, of which it is inordinately proud. Dispersed here and there are wooden benches, sanctified by generations of lovers. Carven thereon are the presentments, and often interlaced, of hearts that have long since ceased to beat, lonely hearts transfixed by arrows, which in all probability survived the wound and inspired the owner to the parentage of a dozen children, initials once, individually, the record of many a romance, but now, collectively, merely an alphabet run mad. Phyllis entered the avenue, practically deserted at midday, and rested, a pathetically lonely little grey uniformed figure on one of the benches. On the common, some distance behind her, stretched the line of an army service train, with mules and wagons, and here and there a tent. In front of her, beyond the row of trees, was the towing path, an old horse in charge of a boy jogged by, pulling something of which only a moving stove-pipe like a periscope was visible above the bank. Overhead the chestnuts rioted in broad leaf and pink and white blossom, showing starry bits of blue sky, and admitting arrow shafts of spring sunshine. A dirty white mongrel dog, belonging to the barge, came up to her, sniffed, and made friends. Then, at last, obeying a series of whistles from the boy, looked at her apologetically and trotted off. Her gaze followed him wistfully, for he was a very human, dear dog, and with a sympathetic understanding of all her difficulties in his deep topaz eyes. After that she had, as companions, a couple of butterflies and a bumblebee, and a perky portly robin, who hopped within an inch of her feet, and looked up at her sideways out of his hard little eye, so different from the dog's, with the expression of one who would say, "'The most beauteous and delectable worm I have ever encountered. If I were a bit bigger, say the size of the rock of the Arabian Nights, what a dainty morsel you would make. In the meantime, can't you shed something of yourself for my entertainment like others, though grosser of your species?' She laughed at the cold impudence of the creature just as she had smiled at the butterflies and the bumblebee. She surrendered herself to the light happiness of the moment. It was good to escape for an hour from the rigid lines of beds, and the pale suffering faces, and the eternal faint odor of disinfectants, into all this greenery, and the fellowship of birds and beasts unconscious of war. She remembered that once, in the pocket of her cloak, there had been a biscuit or two. Very slowly and carefully, her mind fixed on the robin, she fished for crumbs, 
and very carefully and gently she fed the impudent, stomach-centered fellow. She had attracted him to the end of the seat, when, whiz and clatter, came a motorcycle down the avenue, and off in a terrible scare flew the robin. The idol of tree and beast and birds suffered instant disruption, and Randall Holmes, in his canvas suit, stood before her. He said, "'Good morning, Phyllis.' She said with cold politeness, "'Good morning.' But she asked the spring morning, in dumb piteousness, "'Oh, why has he come? Why has he come to spoil it all?' He sat down by her side. "'This is the luckiest chance I've ever had, finding you here,' he said. "'You've had all my letters, haven't you?' "'Yes,' she answered. "'And I've torn them all up.' "'Why?' "'Because I didn't want them,' she flashed on him. "'I've destroyed them without reading them.' He flushed angrily. Apart from the personal affront, the fact that the literary products of a poet, precious and, in this case, sincere, should have been destroyed, unread, was an antisocial outrage. If it didn't please a woman to believe in God, he said, and God came in person and stood in front of her, she would run out of the room and call upon somebody to come and shoot him for a burglar just to prove she was right. Phyllis was shocked. Her feminine mind pounced on the gross literalness of his rhetorical figure. "'I've never heard anything more blasphemous and horrible,' she exclaimed, moving to her end of the bench. "'Putting yourself in the position of the Almighty. Oh!' And she flung out her hand. "'Don't speak to me!' In spite of the atheistical gedge, Phyllis believed in God and Jesus Christ and the Ten Commandments. She also believed in a host of other simple things, such as goodness and truth, virtue and patriotism. The arguments and theories and glosses that her father and Randall wove about them appeared to her candid mind as meaningless arabesques. She could not see how all the complications concerning the elementary canons of faith and conduct could arise. She appreciated Randall's intellectual gifts. His power of weaving magical words into rhyme fascinated her. She was childlike in her wonder at his command of the printed page. When he revealed to her the beauty of things, as the rogue had a pretty knack of doing, her nature thrilled responsive. He gave her a thousand glimpses into a new world, and she loved him for it. But when he talked lightly of sacred matters, such as God and duty, he ran daggers into her heart. She almost hated him. He had to expend much eloquence and persuasion to induce her to listen to him. He had no wish to break any of the commandments, especially the third. He professed penitence. But didn't she see that her treatment of him was driving him to a desperate unbelief in God and man? When a woman accepted a man's love, she accepted many responsibilities. Phyllis stonily denied acceptance. I've refused it. You asked me to marry you, and I told you I wouldn't, and I won't. You're mixing up two things, he said with a smile, love and marriage. Many people love and don't marry, just as many people marry and don't love. Now once you did tell me that you loved me, and so you accepted my love. There's no getting out of it. I've given you everything I've got, and you can't throw it away. The question is, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with me? His sophistries frightened her, but she cut through them. Isn't it rather a question of what you're going to do with yourself? If you give me up, I don't care a hang what becomes of me. He became very near, and his voice was dangerously soft. Phyllis, dear, I do love you with all my heart. Why won't you marry me? 
but a hateful scene rushed to her memory. She drew herself up. Why are my father and you persecuting me to marry you? Your father, he interrupted in astonishment. When? She named the day, Wednesday of last week. In desperation she told him what had happened. The poor child was fighting for her soul against great odds. It's a conspiracy to get me round to your way of thinking. You want me to be pro-German like yourselves, and I won't be a pro-German, and I think it's wicked to even talk to pro-Germans. She rose, all sobs, fluster, and heroism, and walked away. He strode a step or two, and stood in front of her with his hands on her shoulders. I've never spoken to your father in that way about you. Never. Not a word has passed my lips about my caring for you. On my word of honor, on Tuesday night I left your father's house never to go there again. I told him so. She writhed out of his grasp, and spread the palms of her hands against him. Please don't, she said, and seeing that she stood her ground, he made no further attempt to touch her. The austerity of her grey nurse's uniform gave a touch of pathos to her childish, blue-eyed comeliness and her pretty attitude of defiance. I suppose, she said, he was too pro-German even for you. He looked at her for a long time, disconcertingly, so disconcertingly, and with so much pain and mysterious hesitation in his eyes, as to set even Phyllis's simple mind a-wondering, and to make her emphasize it, in her report of the matter to Betty, as extraordinary and frightening. It seemed, so she explained, in her innocent way, that he had discovered something horrible about her father, which he shrank from telling her. But if they had quarrelled so bitterly, why had her father the next day urged her to marry him? The answer came in a ghastly flash. She recoiled as though in the presence of defilement. If she married Randall, his lips would be closed against her father. That is what her father had meant. The vague, disquieting suspicion of years, that he might not have the same standards of uprightness as other men, attained an awful certainty. She remembered the incident of the private letter and the look in her father's eyes. Finally she revolted. Her soul grew sick. She took no heed of Randall's protest. She only saw that she was to be the cloak to cover up something unclean between them. At a moment like this no woman pretends to have a sense of justice. Randall had equal share with her father in an unknown baseness. She hated him, as he stood there so strong and handsome, and she hated herself for having loved him. At last he said with a smile, Yes, that's just it. What? She had forgotten the purport of her last remark. He was a bit too, well, not too pro-German, but a bit too anti-English for me. You've got hold of the wrong end of the stick all the time, Phyllis dear. I'm no more pro-German than you are. Perhaps I see things more clearly than you do. I've been trained to an intellectual view of human phenomena. Her little pink and white face hardened until it looked almost ugly. The unprecipitant young man continued, And so I take my stand on a position that you must accept on trust. I am English to the backbone. You can't possibly dream that I am not. Come, dear, let me try to explain. His arm curved as if to encircle her waist. She sprang away. Don't touch me. I couldn't bear it. There's something about you I can't understand. In her attitude, too, he found a touch of the incomprehensible. He said, however, with a sneer, If I were swaggering about in a cheap uniform, you'd find me simplicity itself. She caught at his opening, desperately. Yes, 
At any rate, I'd find a man, a man who isn't afraid to fight for his country. Afraid? Yes, she cried, and her blue eyes blazed. Afraid. That's why I can't marry you. I'd rather die than marry you. I've never told you. I thought you'd guess. I'm an English girl, and I can't marry a coward. A coward! A coward! A coward! Her voice ended on a foolish high note, and Randall, very white, had seized her by the wrist. You little fool, he cried. You'll live to repent what you've said. He released her, mounted his motorbike, and rode away. Phyllis watched him disappear up the avenue. Then she walked rather blindly back to the bench and sat down among the ruins of a black and abominable world. After a while the friendly robin, seeing her so still, perched first on the back of the bench, and then hopped on the seat by her side, and cocking his head, looked at her inquiringly out of his little hard eye, as though he would say, "'My dear child, what are you making all this fuss about? Isn't it early June? Isn't the sun shining? Aren't the chestnuts in flower? Don't you see that bank of dark blue cloud over there, which means a nice softening rain in the night, and a jolly good breakfast of worms in the morning?' What's wrong with this exquisitely perfect universe? And Phyllis, on her own confession, with an angry gesture, sent him scattering up among the cool broad leaves and cried, Get away, you hateful little beast! And, having no use for robins and trees and spring and sunshine and such like intolerable ironies, a white little wisp of a nurse left them all to their complacent riot and went back to the hospital. End of chapter 11